Well, welcome to another edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh, and this hour, we are going to focus on an issue that is a very important issue. It's very important for us in the body of Christ, and it's something that we have to think about in terms of, well, uh, the, the world that we're living in right now, and that is how do we as Christians share the good news with people who need to hear it but don't realize that they need to hear it. I'm talking about evangelism. I'm talking about why it is important. I mean, it, it, it's become more important as the years have gone by to talk to people about what's happening in the world. Um, and from the standpoint of that we play a part in this, I, I honestly think that there's a big disconnect in the culture between our actions, our sin, and the fact that we have to take responsibility for the sin. I mean, you see the, the cases, case after case coming out, where there was a you know police brutality case or uh, theft or you know some, some kind of sinful activity. And and what do you see in the verdict that's handed down, with no admission of guilt whatsoever? I, I, I've always been fascinated with that. I mean, this is probably why I didn't have a career in law. <laughs> to be honest with you. And uh, ha if you are in the legal profession, my hat's off to you. Because I don't know, especially the older I get, how you don't let those things impact you. You ever been on a trial? I was actually, I got uh, summoned for jury duty uh, for the first time in quite some time recently and uh, um, had a, a, a reason for not being able to serve. Family obligation and commitment that uh, uh, requires my attention. Uh, and especially on the dates when they wanted me in court. And so I filled out the thing, sent it back, don't, no harm, no foul. But it was very interesting to see um, the number of people who were, um, you know, who, who get into court cases. And when they hear the court cases, you know, they, they, they will hear the testimony and a witness is on the stand and the jury, you know, has to listen to, you know, what's uh, being asked and answered, this, that, and the other thing. And then something will come up on the other side, like maybe the prosecution's asking, uh, you know, a cross-examination question. And the defense attorney will say, you know, object, object, object. And the judge then has to make a decision as to whether or not the question was asked properly or if it crossed the bounds of, you know, legality or this, that, and the other thing. And then the judge will issue this warning to the jury. The jury will disregard the testimony they just heard. And I'm thinking to myself, how? I just heard it. And I can't unhear it. Now, I may forget it later <laughs> at some point. There's a lot of information that we are bombarded with each and every day. But the reality is you can't unsee certain things. You can't unhear certain things. You can't not experience things that you've experienced. And so I think more and more as we as Christians are facing the predicament of how do we share our faith. A lot of times we just sit on our hands and say, I'm not going to do it. It's too complicated. People engage on social media all the time. And last week I, I shared a, a, a message, if you will, with regard to a, a pastor who had shared his thoughts on social media. And he said, look, social media by design is, is created to polarize. It, it, need, it feeds off of that. That's the only way you can build an audience with social media is to divide people. 
And so though, we were told, go on Facebook, go on Instagram. It'll bring people together. You get have Facebook chats and family reunions and stuff like that. And there is the capacity for that. But at the core, it's kind of like when you go to the restaurant and they have the little lounge area where you're supposed to wait for your table. And, of course, you know, they never seat you right away so that you go into the lounge area and where they do. There's music playing, there's television on. They offer you something to drink and they offer you, you know, complimentary snacks. And what are the snacks? Everything they offer you is salty. Why do they do that? So you'll get thirsty. Why do you do that? So you'll buy a drink. I mean, that's, I mean, there's, there's a method of the madness. No one sets up a business and says, here, this will be good for you and you exclusively so you won't need us. It's all designed to get you to purchase things. I mean, not that we're spilling any trade secrets here, but if you've ever gone to a fast food restaurant and you walk in and go, why are these seats so uncomfortable? Why are the colors so loud and gaudy? And what? Because they don't want you to stay. I mean, they want you to, if you come in, buy the food and leave. That, that's the whole point. They don't make any bones about it. No one wants you to hang out at Jack in the Box for an hour and a half having a conversation. Your rear end can't take it. Anyway, so long story short, We've gotten to the point in the culture where, A, go into all the world and preach the gospel has become more mandatory now than ever before. But B, there is a certain challenge to it because so many people are of the impression that they haven't done anything wrong. That their sin doesn't smell that bad, as it were. The whole, even, let's face it, when Isaiah says my righteousness are like filthy rags, even a lot of Christians are thinking, well, you know, I'm not, and, and that, that what about ism? And I'm not as bad as him. Was it Luther or maybe Chesterton, Spurgeon, who said, let us not mark our own sanctification based on the sinfulness of other people. In other words, don't compare yourself to those folks. But making a declaration of faith in a way that people actually understand it. I mean, there are opportunities all over the place. Here's a classic case. Orange County physician and a Los Angeles County lab owner are now facing federal charges in separate cases for their alleged participation in schemes involving healthcare services that exploited the pandemic. You knew this was coming. I mean, you, it's been around us for three years or so. This is yet another case. Dr. Anthony Din of Newport Coast is one of the doctors. He's the one who allegedly submitted fraudulent claims for treatment of patients who were insured, billed for services that weren't rendered, and also were billed for services that were not medically necessary. Now, I'm not going to be naive enough or pretend to be you know, naive enough to think that this wouldn't happen on a regular basis. I don't know what it's like to work in a medical office. Maybe if you do, you, you can shed some insight. Drop me a line at thebottomlineshow.com. Maybe you could provide some insight as to why. Remember we had a proposition that was on the uh, ballot a couple of times. Uh, where they were talking about like dialysis treatment and and uh, certified you know certain people who had to join a certain union and you couldn't bill more than a certain amount. I mean, it's a fairly well-known fact that for whatever reason in the insurance game, health insurance game, that medical offices routinely have to bill 300% higher than the actual charges in hopes that they'll actually get somewhere close to the cost that they actually incur when treating you. 
I wish it weren't that way. You know, you walk into the doctor's office, you have a, what, $20 copay, whatever. Last uh, June, I had pneumonia. I was out for a couple of weeks because I had pneumonia that also had COVID on the side. I went to an emergency room at a hospital here locally, and I was not admitted, but six hours and $25,000 worth of tests later, I was on my way to recovery with an inhaler and a couple of other medications. Now, when I was there, I had a $100 copay per my insurance, and the insurance has paid off everything else. They settled up with the hospital. But there's no way they gave me $25,000 worth of treatment. But that's how much the insurance company was billing, or was billed, rather, knowing that they were going to pay about a third of that. That's just kind of the way the scheme works. So to hear about a doctor jacking up the costs of services rendered is not uncommon. However, during the COVID pandemic, there was a lot more opportunity for doctors to engage in illegal activity. There was more money on the table. There was more money up for grabs. I mean, let's be real. If you, I mean, you've, you've heard these. This is anecdotal. I won't mention any names, but someone very close to me uh, was diagnosed with COVID, took a COVID test, uh, a home test, needed to continue to work, so went to a local hospital for a COVID test and was told by the nurse who gave him the test, well, this could be the flu and it could be COVID. I just want you to know up front, I'm putting it down as COVID because our hospital will get more money from this test if it's considered COVID. People who were admitted to hospitals, the hospital got paid more if it was a COVID diagnosis. If somebody died at a hospital and they had COVID in their system, it was listed as a death from COVID rather than death with COVID because there was more money involved for the people who were providing the care. I mean, that's that's the way the government acted and reacted during the pandemic, it happened. But Dr. Anthony Din allegedly submitted fraudulent claims, claiming to treat patients who were insured when they didn't actually render those services. And then there was the issue of services that were not medically necessary. If you've ever been on the receiving end of one of those statements, it is a little heartbreaking when you find out that the doctor who ran a whole series, I remember in my early 30s, prior to what is now the common colonoscopy, there was something called, I believe, the sigmioscope. And this thing, the colonoscopy at least has a machine that's designed to run in your colon and it'll move and kind of flex and give them the camera's eye view. The sigmioscope was just kind of like, you know the batons that the majorettes use in marching bands? That's what this was like with a little camera on it. It was when I was wide awake. It was one of the most painful experiences I ever had. I was going through some stress testing and it turned out I didn't need a sigmioscope. I was 30 years old, but my insurance would pay for it And there was a history of colon cancer in my family. My mother's father uh, lost his life in his late 50s to colon cancer. So the doctor had no trouble ordering that test, running that test on me, finding nothing problematic, and then sending a bill to my insurance company. Well, apparently Dr. Anthony Din of Newport Coast was submitting claims for treatment of patients who were in fact insured and didn't need the supplemental claim was billing for services that they didn't actually do, and then 
was also billing for services that were not medically necessary. If you look at a lot of the COVID spending packages, by the way, you'll find that at least three-fourths of the funding that was in the quote-unquote emergency $3 trillion package was every day, day-to-day, this is business as usual, government spending. It was not COVID-related. But he called the package COVID relief, and that's what they did. So um, in addition... Dr. Din apparently also submitted over 70 fraudulent loan applications under the Paycheck Protection Program and the Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program and picked up $3 million from that as well. So uh, we'll keep you posted as to what's going to happen uh, at thebottomlineshow.com. But what's interesting about this case, though, is it brings to mind yet again the fact that there are people in the world who are sinners and have yet to receive salvation for their sin And yet they'll say, well, I'm good because no one accused me of a crime yet. I haven't been accused. I haven't been convicted. And there is a rendering for that. There will come a day when we will stand before the Lord and we will have to give an accounting for what we did. And we, those of us who are believers, will be able to say, Father, I am a sinner. Please forgive me for my sin. I believe, but help me in my unbelief. But I believe that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for my sin, that my sin is forgiven, and it's paid in full, and it's wiped clean from the slate because of his blood and his death and resurrection. And we'll be welcomed into heaven because God will say, yes, your name's in the book of life because I know you had that heart transplant, if you will, that made that happen. It's still important to publicly invite people to receive Christ, whether it's an altar call at church, whether it's sharing the gospel face-to-face, even having a conversation about the story we just shared. Dr. Matt Queen has written a book, along with Dr. O.S. Hawkins, about the need for public invitations of faith. The book is called The Gospel Invitation, Why Publicly Inviting People to Receive Christ Still Matters. There's a link for that book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Dr. Matt Queen joins us to have this conversation coming up next as The Bottom Line continues. You can protect against market volatility without investing all your money into bonds. Wilson Financial has simply better alternatives. The last 12 months, there has been almost $1.7 trillion invested in investment-grade bonds. This move to safety locks up money for a long time of guaranteed low returns. Why? Market volatility. Well, my comment is why go with low earnings for a long time when you can get great earnings with a solid real estate-backed investment paying you 6% over the next three years. After three years, you can invest in another option, or you can do what most of our investors do and reinvest in another one of our new exclusive 6% accounts. This strategy gives you the best of both options without settling for many years of low returns. Our 3D Money 6% account pays you great interest while you're not subjecting yourself to market volatility. Call 800-696-9970, 800-696-9970, or visit kbrightradio.com slash Wilson Financial and ask about Dennis Wilson's exclusive real estate-backed 6% investment account. Wilson Financial Services, for simply better alternatives. Well, in case you haven't noticed, the influence of the church in the United States has dropped dramatically. And a lot of that has to stem with the fact that we saw during the pandemic, fewer people were engaging in worship. I mean, some did online, 
But now we're coming back to church and denominations are smaller, congregations are smaller, and you have to ask the question, well, is it that the church is dying off or is it because fewer and fewer churches are echoing a call to evangelism? Today here on The Bottom Line, I want to take a look at a brand new resource that it really tackles this question head on. The book is called The Gospel Invitation, Why Publicly Inviting People to Christ Receive Christ Still Matters co-authored by O.S. Hawkins and Dr. Matt Queen. Uh, Matt is the L.R. Scarborough Chair of Evangelism and Professor of Evangelism at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, Dr. Matt Queen, welcome to the Bottom Line Show today. It is good to be with you today, Roger. I did not grow up in a tradition where we had regular altar calls, but the older I get, I truly appreciate a pastor or a church leader responding to the Spirit's prompting, as opposed to the, now we're at that point in the service where you're supposed to ask people to come forward. Um, talk about what you're talking about when you talk about the, the gospel invitation, whether it's publicly inviting person to person or in the church pew, you know, to bring someone to the altar. How, how do you define a public invitation to Christ? That's great. That's a great question. Yeah, so uh, Dr. Hawkins and I, in our book, um, we, we define a, a public gospel invitation as uh, any time that the gospel is is presented, and then it is a call, it is a plea, it is an appeal for people to respond publicly and immediately to the call of repentance and belief. And so sometimes it can take the call, uh, the, the form of an altar call, but in the book, Dr. Hawkins and I talk about other ways that pastors can also do the same thing, but maybe do it in a different venue, uh, depending mm -hmm. on the context of the church. Yeah. It's interesting, uh, Matt, the, when you talk about the, the public invitation and the fact that so few of us actually do this, I was thinking back, it was just over five years ago, I had open heart surgery, and a number of people were very kind to reach out on social media, hey, we're praying for you, please pray for my friend, blah, 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 here's the day of the surgery. But I was really blown away with the number of people that I knew where I would be literally in a room with them you know, sitting across the table having a conversation. They'd find out about the surgery, and they'd say, oh, I'll be sure to pray for you. And I'm like, well, I'm here right now. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I, it's not like everybody saves them all up for March 12th at 8 a.m. and then piles them all on and storms heaven at that point. And I wonder how many of us do the same thing when it comes to a gospel invitation. What is it? You and Dr. Ross Hawkins have, have put together this book. What have you found? I mean, if we see denominations kind of losing memberships, but not as many people being baptized, I mean, that means people aren't being given the invitation, the opportunity to receive Christ as Lord and Savior. That, that, that's exactly right. You know, the Bible gives a lot of warnings, especially in uh, 2 Corinthians. Uh, Paul writes, and he says, today is the day of salvation. Now is yeah. the appointed time. And, uh, you know, I, I think what, what why it's important that you have a public invitation to invite people to publicly and to immediately respond is because of this. Many times when the Word is preached, nobody can get saved unless they hear the gospel. Right. And so when they hear the gospel— the Holy Spirit does something in people's lives. Now, sometimes he does things, he's convicting them, and they reject it. You know, uh, Sometimes he is convicting them, and, and they're opening their hearts, and then he's starting to convince them in their minds as well. But here's the thing. Roger, lost people, unbelievers, those who are apart from Christ, they don't know what to do even after they hear the gospel and are convicted mm -hmm. by the Spirit. Mm -hmm. That's why in the Bible, Luke 3, that people ask John the Baptist in Acts 2, they ask Peter— in Acts 16, a jailer asked Paul, what must I do? They've heard the gospel. They've been convicted. But mm -hmm. they need someone right there in that moment to help them know how do you go about, what does it mean to repent? What does it mean to believe? Mm -hmm. 
I love hearing this with Dr. Matt Queen today here on The Bottom Line. He and Dr. O.S. Hawkins, the co-authors of the brand new book called The Gospel Invitation, Why Publicly Inviting People to Receive Christ Still Matters. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Matt, it seems to me like we have, how many times have you talked to somebody who's read the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch and said, wow, that's really great what Philip did? Without putting two and two together, saying, "Well, why is it just <laughs> Philip?" You know, what yeah, I mean? I mean, it's replete throughout the whole Bible. The Bible, you know, in, in in fact, Roger, the very first public invitation, as it were, was in Genesis three. Whenever man, man and woman, Adam and Eve, rule Adam, rule Eve, they sinned. They hid behind trees. They hid behind fig leaves. And God called Adam. He said, "Adam, where are you?" And that call from God to to lost uh, humanity still echoes throughout the ages. And so what God did in the garden, Moses did there right after the uh, golden calf incident and told people to come, and if they're going to go with God, they need to come to him. Elijah did it there on Mount Carmel. Peter did it at Pentecost. And if, if there's not something that's changed from the Bible times to our times, we still need to publicly and immediately call people to faith. Dr. Matt Queen is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. The book is called The Gospel Invitation, Why Publicly Inviting People to Receive Christ Still Matters. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. This is a, a helpful book. It's not super heavy in terms of there's 500 pages and 37 chapters or whatever. I mean, you've broken mm-hmm. it up very nicely. But one of the things you talk about in addition to the necessity of a public gospel in- invitation is also the planning of doing so. And I mentioned the altar call. That's just one of many ways. But I wonder how many people, um, I was thinking of it. There's a woman who used to be a part of a church I was part of. And she, we didn't realize it, but everybody knew Deb. She was just the nicest, sweetest, you know, her kids were involved in our church's school. And when she and her husband, he got a job and was transferred from California to Michigan, all of a sudden the attendance at the church started to drop. And we began to realize that she was kind of a one woman evangelism crew, you know, in terms Mm. of not only bringing people to church, but bringing people to faith. And we had relied so heavily on her influence. The church is now on life support. I mean, 10 years later, there's 15 people worshiping there. And it's because Mm. of this one woman's influence. Talk to pastors or those of us who are seasoned veteran the faith as saying, hey, look, we need to be more strategic in terms of not only doing this ourselves, but also equipping the disciples, the saints, if you will, to reach out and to offer that extended offer. That's exactly that's exactly right. You know, uh, I do evangelism training all over the country every, almost every week. And, you know, a lot of people say that the scariest, most fearful thing about evangelism for them is is starting the conversation. Uh, mm. Sometimes for a new budding preacher or a, a Bible study teacher, sometimes it can be kind of uh, fearful to get up in a pulpit before a big crowd. Uh, right. But I will tell you, that's not the scariest thing about evangelism. That's not the scariest thing about sharing the gospel or making a disciple through evangelism. Many times I think the scariest thing is, what if you present the gospel? What if you call on someone, hey, is this a decision you'd like to make? Or come and make this decision today if you're doing that publicly. And then the person says yes. <laughs> then you're like, okay, <laughs> now what? what do I do? <laughs> you know, I didn't expect you to do that, you know. Yeah. And so uh, Dr. Hawkins and I, in this book, what we've done is we've actually given some major principles for public speaking, but they can also be applied to the personal witness. You said the veteran in the faith, the Bible study teacher, and helping them clearly communicate what does it mean to repent? What I mean, that's a biblical word, but you know, what does that mean? Especially someone who's never been to church, they don't know what repentance is. What is faith? Um, how can they be led to to confess Jesus as Lord? And so this book uh, talks about some of the different ways that we do that. And it, it's real important. We have to be prepared. We can't just do like, okay, 
if God gives me an opportunity, you know, there'll be a spotlight coming down from heaven, angels singing nice. in the background. Yeah. If someone come up and they'll just, you know, they've already, God's done all the work and, you know, I just kind of lead them to pray. No, we need to make sure that we understand that whether it's a public opportunity or in the, in the regular rhythms of our life, we need to be prepared to give that invitation, to invite people, to encourage them, to, to appeal to them, to make that decision, and then be able to tell them how they can repent and believe in order to receive God's forgiveness. Dr. Matt Queen is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. Dr. Queen, along with Dr. O.S. Hawkins, are the co-authors of a brand new book called The Gospel Invitation, Why Publicly Inviting People to Receive Christ Still Matters. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com, and in this book you'll find uh, lots of how-tos, if you will, on the necessity of the public gospel invitation, how you plan to do so, some examples of what they look like in Scripture that we've been talking about here. On the other side of this break, I want to talk about the, the, the what this practically looks like in real life. I mean, you kind of alluded to it a little bit, Matt, with regard to the, we want the big red arrow, the spotlight and the, he's over there, you know, type of message from God, Mm -hmm. you know, that we're supposed to share. But there are some who are saying, okay, wait a minute, I've got a few questions and I'm going to try, I'll play devil's advocate on the other side of this break and ask some of those questions of you and how you would respond to them. Dr. Matt Queen is my guest. The Gospel Invitation, Why Publicly Inviting People to Receive Christ Still Matters is the name of the book. More of this conversation in just a moment as the bottom line continues. Welcome back to The Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. Glad to have you along for this hour where we discuss sin and its ramifications and why we need a Savior and why a book like the new one from Dr. O.S. Hawkins and Dr. Matt Queen is so important. The book is called The Gospel Invitation, Why Publicly Inviting People to Receive Christ Still Matters. There's a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com, and we do have a copy of the book to give away right now, 800-227-5278. 800 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. Again, this book, The Gospel Invitation, talks about why it's so important for us to issue Christ's invitation to the lost, but more importantly, why we need to understand it on our own. I mean, a lot of people say, oh, yes, I believe. I went to a Harvest Crusade. I saw Jesus Revolution. I read this book. I heard this concert, whatever it is. But they don't fully understand why the need for salvation is so essential because of the role that we have all played in it, which is all of we like sheep have gone astray. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Scripture is very clear about that. Without a Savior, then having Jesus as your Lord and your guide really doesn't make any difference. Dr. Matt Queen joins me for round two of this conversation on the need for public invitations for accepting Christ. Coming up next as the bottom line continues. Don't believe your insurance company is looking out for you. They're not. They want you to call them after you're in an accident, but you shouldn't handle that alone. That's where Stephanie Cover of Cover Law shines. With 20 years of insurance industry experience, she knows all the angles and will fight for your rights. Insurance companies pretend to be your partner, but in reality, their primary goal is to pay you as little as possible. When you work with Cover Law, Stephanie becomes your negotiator, and the insurance companies must talk to her, not you. You need to rest and heal. Stephanie is different from other attorneys. She's fully invested in your legal, medical, financial, emotional, and spiritual needs. After an accident, you don't want to deal with insurance adjusters who want to minimize your payout. So don't wait. Contact Cabright's personal injury attorney today at cabrightradio.com slash coverlaw. 
you won't pay a dime to talk to someone who truly cares about your healing. Dr. Matt Queen is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. I'm Roger Marsh. Dr. Queen serves as the L.R. Scarborough Chair of Evangelism and Professor of Evangelism at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. He is the co-author of a brand new book that he wrote with Dr. O.S. Hawkins called The Gospel Invitation, Why Publicly Inviting People to Receive Christ Still Matters. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. And Matt, during the break, you and I were talking about a phenomenon that we've both seen happen in the culture right now. I've seen it go to one of two extremes. Extreme number one is pastors aren't doing altar calls, pastors aren't equipping their congregations to go into all the world and preach the gospel and then have the anticipation that someone might actually respond to it by the power of the Holy Spirit. The other side of the equation is the pastor does all the work and will stand up there for 15 minutes with the band continuing to play saying, who's coming forward? You know, and (laughs) it kind of leaves a bad taste in everybody's mouth. It's kind of a combination of, you know, those are kind of the extremes, but where exactly does pastoral ministry play its most effective role in the public invitation to faith? Well, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So, you know, I think that um, uh, there have been some some abuses of altar calls or getting people to do things, and of course that happens because the speaker, whoever he is, pastor, evangelist, preacher, um, you know, he, he is in this or he is doing this for whatever he gets out of it. And of course, uh, as you've already mentioned, uh, no one comes to Christ if the Holy Spirit's not in the process. And so um, what pastors need to do in a, a role of the pastor is to realize that uh, he can he can give the best sermon ever, but if it's devoid of the Spirit of God and he's doing it in his own power, that's not a good example of the flock that also won't result in true uh, disciples generally. So I think that's, that's one of the things that uh, the pastors need to realize is, why am I doing this? Why would I give a gospel invitation? You know, on the other end, people that don't do it at all, you know, there's there's a couple of things I think that contribute to that. There's a very very well-meaning discipleship culture today that says if somebody comes to faith in Christ, it only can happen in the context of a relationship over a long period of time, hmm. and um, you, you know you have to kind of get to know the person. So a stranger listening to another stranger asking to make you know life's biggest decision there on the spot, that's not going to be something that happens. But as you and I have already talked about before the break. Uh, we see this happen all the time throughout the scriptures, and not just in the scriptures. We, uh, Dr. Hawkins and I talk about throughout history, uh, through the Great Awakenings, uh, we see people doing this. So I think that's one thing that contributes to that uh, in pastors, that we need to understand, yes, uh, we ought to dis- make disciples in the context of relationships, but that doesn't mean that we have to preclude calling people immediately to publicly respond to Jesus Christ. Uh, the other one is there's some pragmatists that are out there, and maybe they've tried to do it. They don't have a problem with it. They've tried to do it, but they've just not maybe uh, understood exactly how to do it in a way that lets the text call people to faith in Christ. And so they say, quote-unquote, it doesn't work. And so I think those are the th- some of the things that w- we just want to remind a pastor, hey, if you've tried to do this and you say it doesn't work, uh, try to get the book. What we try to do is, as you said, it's not overwhelming. We try to make it very short and readable. In fact, most people are texting me and contacting us and letting us know they're reading it in one sitting and how nice. applicable it is. So mm-hmm. I think that's, uh, that's, what, that's some things that the pastor can, can, uh, uh, can benefit from from the book. 
I'm talking with Dr. Matt Queen today here on The Bottom Line, co-author of the brand new book called The Gospel Invitation, Why Publicly Inviting People to Receive Christ Still Matters. There's a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. And as we have uh, discussed ad nauseum, this is not a book to give to your pastor saying, here, this is why you need to do altar calls. But rather, the the public invitation means when you are out in public or you have people in your Mm -hmm. home looking for every opportunity. And I know some of the, the, the more common uh, concerns that people have, the pushbacks, or that, you know, I'm not an evangelist, or that's not my calling, or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I know deep down, a lot of people have a fear that they're either going to do it wrong, they're going to say the wrong mm-hmm. thing, or someone's going to say, well, I don't believe it, I need more evidence. I know two of the easy answers to that are, well, wait a minute, the Holy Spirit's going to give you the words to say, number one. And number mm-hmm. two, the person who truly wants to be converted is going to do so under the prompting of the Holy Spirit. How do we convince mm-hmm. our brothers and sisters in Christ that God really has done the work for us? All we have to do is kind of, I mean, the meal's made, we just have to put it on the table. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. Yeah, you know, a, a lot of people think that when it comes to, in their personal lives, sharing the gospel, uh, they will say, you know, I've never been trained, I don't have a certificate, you know, I've not been to a seminary school or Bible mm-hmm. college like you have, Matt. I just don't know what to say. But you know, Roger, I found out that uh, uh, if we know enough of the gospel to be saved by it, then we know enough of the gospel to share it. You know, what yeah, someone right. else told us, that's what we need to tell someone else. And right. so uh, to those that you know that you ought to be doing this, you just don't feel like you're confident enough, think back to your testimony. Think back to what someone else told you that, you know, you're a sinner, you've disobeyed God, and God in his love sent Jesus to die, be buried, and raised. And uh, you have to turn away from trying to save yourself and put your faith in Him. But those those are some just encouragements that uh, you know in early church there were no professional uh, uh, preachers. You know, right. uh, even in John chapter four, uh, whenever the Sadducees, which they were the professionals, when they saw Peter and John preaching, they said these guys are common, untrained men, but they had been with Jesus. And to be with Jesus uh, means that we have that, I mean, that's all we need, because if we're abiding in him, he's guiding our steps, he's directing our thoughts, and he's also giving us the words to share. Dr. Matt Queen is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. We're talking about the book he is the co-author of called The Gospel Invitation, Why Publicly Inviting People to Receive Christ Still Matters. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. As it gets more difficult in the culture, Matt, um, I get the sense that legally, there will be more challenges. You're going to have Coach Joe Kennedy's going out and wanting to take a knee and, mm. you know, use that as a witness mm. for the Lord. And then they spend seven years in court trying to get their jobs mm. back. And that might be clouding, you know, some of the, it uh, might be creating some apprehension. But at the same mm-hmm. time, though, do you get the sense that there are more people who really are hungering, that the Spirit is really moving people's hearts, and it's going to make our job for evangelizing a lot easier than we think it's going to be? Yeah, well, I think it's always going to be tough. As long as the devil is uh, here and he's trying to uh, put athwart the plans of God, it's always going to be tough anywhere. Um, but I do think that there are a lot of signs in which people are seeing, hey, uh, God is still at work. God's not done with the United States. God's not done with the West. He, he is working a lot down in the South, global South, but he still is not done here. In fact, I'll just tell you, Roger, that uh, uh, since the book is released, um, I actually got an email from the head evangelism coordinator for one of the largest, uh, actually the largest Protestant denomination in the world, and or in the nation, and uh, he got his counterpart from Canada and said, hey, I've not been doing this. I actually put these things into practice, and we saw people become disciples of Jesus Christ right there wow. uh, at, a, at a church service. Uh, I had uh, yesterday, uh, was uh, Sunday, and uh, I was uh, uh, having a call uh, uh, about... Um, 
uh, from a pastor, and he said, look, the stuff that you told me, I put into, into practice, and somebody actually came to faith in Christ in my service. And it. so I, I do think that God's Spirit is working. God is using uh, the public invitation still to, to let us know here in America God's not done with us yet. I love that. That's such an encouragement from Dr. Matt Queen today here on The Bottom Line. He and Dr. O.S. Hawkins are the co-authors of the brand new book called The Gospel Invitation, Why Publicly Inviting People to Receive Christ Still Matters. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Got about 60 seconds left in our conversation with Dr. Matt Queen. Matt, what gives you the most hope and the most encouragement about what you've written, knowing that this is not a, hey, I don't get the sense you wrote this out of desperation at all, but rather just to say, Mm -hmm. hey, let's clarify a few things, because we still have that great commission that we are supposed to fulfill. That's right. Well, uh, uh, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24 uh, that all the the, uh, people groups would hear, and then the end would come, and he would return. So I know that he's not returned yet, because not everybody has heard, and I know that God's will cannot be thwarted, and so as in the personal uh, uh, ways and rhythms of our life, as well as in the pulpits, the gospel still being preached, the gospel is still the power of God into salvation. I love it. I love it. And this resource is going to help people uh, in ways that well, you've already heard Dr. Matt Queen share, that it's already doing the work uh, that God has intended for it, and may it continue to uh, be fruitful and multiply all over the world. Dr. Matt Queen, Dr. O.S. Hawkins, the brand new book, The Gospel Invitation, Why Publicly Inviting People to Receive Christ Still Matters. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Dr. Matt Queen, get, great to get to know you, sir. Thanks for being with us today here on The Bottom Line. Thank you again for having me, and God bless you. Well, a delightful conversation. Great to get to know Dr. Matt Queen. We've gotten to know O.S. Hawkins over the years, and so grateful for the opportunity to meet Dr. Queen now. Uh, The book again, The Gospel Invitation, Why Publicly Inviting People to Receive Christ Still Matters. There's a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com, and we do have a copy of the book that we're giving away right now, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. Again, the book is called The Gospel Invitation. And I, I mentioned at the outset, I want to follow up on this on the other side of this break. It is so important that people understand that we are sinful people by nature, that we're born sinful into a sinful fallen world. Sin is going to happen not because of a few bad apples, but because that's our natural tendency. But the supernatural way to overcome that tendency is through the blood of Jesus Christ. And I want to give you an example of the difference between being found guilty in a court of law versus being guilty standing before God when it comes to our sin. That's coming up next as The Bottom Line continues. My thanks again to Dr. Matt Queen for joining me today here on The Bottom Line for a conversation about a brand new book he has co-authored with Dr. O.S. Hawkins called The Gospel Invitation, Why Publicly Inviting People to Receive Christ Still Matters. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com and we're giving away a copy of the book this hour. 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. And boy, I'll tell you, when you see the number of denominations that are just dying out, the church membership is really on the wane. I know from experience, having been part of a church that had a lot of older people uh, as our primary congregation, but there were years where we might baptize a couple of babies and we would have 40 funerals. You know, I mean, it was just, it was that type of stuff. 
Um, going to all the world and preach the gospel means we're going to be baptizing a ton of people. But it's not just pastors getting up there and begging and pleading and saying, come on down. We'll just The band's going to keep playing until we get at least one person. But the public gospel invitation, I think, to a lot of people means the pastor does all the work or the evangelist does all the work. In the new book by Dr. Matt Queen and O.S. Hawkins called The Gospel Invitation, the publicly inviting people to receive Christ part is something that we do. And whereas there are some denominations that say, you know what, the word of God does the work, just read the word out loud and people will hear it and the Holy Spirit will do the convicting. Um, Dr. Queen and Dr. Hawkins in this new book talk about the fact that they see and point out in the book that there is biblical justification for a gospel invitation. Um, They offer a little history on what this is like and kind of move us from the thought that the gospel, public gospel invitation is the evangelist or the pastor doing it. Rather, that's just you and me having conversation with other people and having a dialogue about sin and the, the, the need that we have for restitution, uh, for making things right, as it were. And, and I, I, I'm grateful, you know, quite frankly, that uh, we can have these conversations with people. I think a lot of people deep down want to have them. And um, it, the fact that there are so many cases, like the one we're about to get into here, um, the, the number of people who in the culture will say, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in the Bible, but oh boy, howdy, if somebody breaks the law, they need to pay for it. You have to ask the question, well, why? I mean, if you don't believe in God, you don't believe in the Bible, and you don't believe in those types of morals and standards, then why should people obey the law? Well, if we don't have the law, then the, 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 the people, you know, bad people will get away with doing bad things. Okay, so you can see where that public invitation to have a conversation about the gospel is a lot more readily available than you might think. Uh, get in on the copy giveaway here of Dr. Matt Queen's book, The Gospel Invitation, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, the number to get you through to the bottom line. Um, case in point, we talk, Martin Luther talks about this a lot, the two kingdoms. Basically, of course, we'll be praying the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The, rec- the reference there, of course, is the fact that God's perfect will is being carried out in heaven as we speak, and the temporal will here in our life is to make sure the gospel is proclaimed, that we as Christ followers would live out that good news wherever we go and whatever we do. And that's how people know we're Christians. I know that sounds really basic to say, but it's true. How else do you see the kingdom of God at work than if you see it at work in the lives of other people? When Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount and he was talking about the Beatitudes, and then he says in Matthew 5, let your light so shine before others that they see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. For years as a younger believer, I spent a lot of time hung up on that, let your light so shine before others that they would see your good deeds. I felt like it was drawing attention to me But then I began to realize, wait, no. They will see your good deeds, the things that you do, but they will give glory to God because what they won't see you doing the really wonderful things, they'll see God working in and through you. They'll say, my goodness, Roger's kind of a, what the heck? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know how he could do, how did that happen? 
You know, I mean, Jesus makes reference to that in John 13. Remember where he says, a new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you should love one another. Everyone will know that you're my disciples. Let's put a modern spin on this. No one would ever believe you guys could get along unless it was something supernatural. So it's kind of polite in the King James. All men will know that you are my disciples. It's really, they're not going to believe this. They're going to see Samaritans and they're going to see Gentiles. They're going to see Jews all getting together and saying we love each other and we're here for each other. That's incredible. That's the kind of unity that progressives say, oh, we can find this, but we can't apart from Christ. We really honestly can't. Anytime I see any sort of legal case come up in the news, it it reminds me of how sinful and fallen our world is and yet how God's natural law is written on the hearts of everyone, which creates so much confusion for people in the temporal world. Now, God, we have the two kingdoms, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of earth. And in the kingdom of earth, we have our eternal marching orders in scripture to live like Christians in this world. But there are laws in this world that are just designed to keep us from killing each other. I mean, God gives them to us kind of like uh, if you ever go bowling and they put up the bumper rails and the gutters. It's really just to keep, you know, things together. Let's face it. If it weren't for traffic lights, stop signs and speed limits, there would be so many fatalities on the road. You have to put those in there to make sure you have to put a brake pedal on cars. I mean, you honestly do. But a lot of people will get mixed up sometimes and they'll get confused. They'll start to think in terms of, you know, what, what, what we are a constitutional republic or we're a democratic republic or how does this all, all work in U.S. law? And then you'll see something like what happened with the 2020 election and then the rhetoric that happened afterwards for a couple of months. And then January 6th, 2021, which was the day that the election, the general election was to be certified. And under a perfect circumstance where Republican lawmakers going back to the actual election day could have contested the delegates, et cetera. They didn't do any of that. So really, Vice President Mike Pence at the time had one option, and that was certify the election. And then lawmakers could work to make sure that they all those different 300-plus laws that were passed that basically rigged the election away from Donald Trump could be overturned if they were entered into illegally, and many of them have been. New laws have been enacted, and quite frankly, the the big scare from Democrats, oh, Republicans are going to take away your right to vote, has actually led to an increase in Democrat-registered voters, an increase in participation of uh, people of color, minorities voting, and whatnot. But the left is still fixated on the fact that a group of right-wing zealots showed up at the nation's capital, broke into the capital, and and formed a, a riot, you know, an insurrection. A military coup. They have no idea what a military coup looks like. But they saw some well-intentioned but perhaps passionately misguided people organizing a fighter group. And there's a guy here in Southern California who has admitted to teaming up with a former Orange County police chief and also members of an extremist group in order to organize what was called a group of fighters to travel to the U.S. Capitol. And uh, he has pleaded guilty to his role in the The Orange County Register calls it an insurrection. A guy by the name of Russell Taylor uh, admitted during a hearing at a federal courthouse in D.C. to conspiring to obstruct official proceedings. Uh, He'd also faced numerous charges uh, on the federal level, obstruction, entering a restricted building, and lawful possession of dangerous weapons on Capitol grounds, et cetera, et cetera. Um, The plea means that he has to cooperate with law enforcement agencies, which means he's going to squeal. 
uh, notes that the charge that he admitted to carries a potential maximum sentence of 20 years in federal prison. Now, it's interesting because his attorney says that he's already had four different meetings with the government. Uh, He said he's doing the right thing. He's taking full responsibility. Here's what happened. Uh, Russ Taylor and Alan Hostetter, who's a former La Habra police chief, who is now a yoga instructor and conservative activist, can't make this up, uh, they worked to uh, organize a group of people who planned a team. They left from Riverside County, a group called the Three Percenters, a right-wing militia group. And, um, you know, these are guys who had uh, been spied on by the government because they were anti-maskers. According to a court filing on January 6th, Taylor was wearing a black plate carrier vest with a knife in the pocket. He also had a backpack that contained a hatchet and a stun baton. After he heard Donald Trump's speech, he uh, marched over with the crowd on Pennsylvania Avenue, went past police barricades and onto the restricted part of Capitol grounds. He was part of the initial group of rioters who clashed with officers outside the Capitol building. And um, next thing you know, 20 years in prison, potentially. We'll keep you posted on this. But you have to ask the question, why is this so important to people on the left when their relationship with God is not? I want to talk about that for just a few moments on the other side of this break as the bottom line continues. One of the greatest gifts that we can give to an expectant mother is the gift of the first picture she'll ever have of her son or daughter in the womb. That comes through an ultrasound, and our friends at Preborn have an opportunity for us to make more of these ultrasounds a reality. Every time you give a donation of $28 to Preborn, that means one more ultrasound can take place. But how about giving enough money for an ultrasound machine? The cost is $15,000. It's a sizable investment. But every ultrasound machine can do 250 ultrasounds per year and lasts at least 10 years. Now take that cost $15,000 and divide that by 2,500. Okay, now you begin to see how the cost per ultrasound goes down even more once we have more ultrasound machines to donate into preborn clinics. Make a donation right now to preborn. It's completely tax deductible, and every penny, every dollar you donate right now is going to the purchase of an ultrasound machine. 833-850-BABY is the number to call, 833-850-2229, or go to kbrightradio.com. That's K-B-R-I-T-E radio.com. Click on the banner for Preborn and make your best donation right now. $25, $50, $100, it all counts towards saving babies' lives. kbrightradio.com. Hit the Preborn banner right now. Welcome back to the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. You have a few moments left to get in on our drawing for the book by Dr. Matt Queen and Dr. O.S. Hawkins, talking about why we need to preach the gospel publicly, uh, not just wait for our pastor to do an altar call. The book is called The Gospel Invitation, Why Publicly Inviting People to Receive Christ Still Matters, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. Have you ever wondered why so many people on the left who are anti-God, they claim to be atheist or agnostic, get so upset about things like the January 6th riots and they want justice to be done? They want laws to be upheld. They want courts to, you know, put down. Why do they do that? See, I don't think there's anything wrong with their feelings about wanting justice. Here's the question. The question is, what is the motivation? To them, they're looking for some final authority. 
if the Supreme Court doesn't rule the way that they rule, want rule, then they feel like they're losing everything. We as Christians understand this is a sinful fallen world. We have temporal laws and courts and judges and you know flawed police officers at times who are going to make mistakes. They're not going to get it all right. But that desire for justice, that desire for the law to be upheld, that desire for a level playing field is actually hardwired into all of us. It's God's natural law. That's why God created the world the way he did, everything to work perfectly in nature with mankind and all created animals, et cetera, et cetera. And when sin entered the camp, now we have to deal with that. And so here's the, the reason why this is actually a good opportunity for us to share the gospel. You have friends, I have friends who are atheist or agnostic who are saying, yeah, January 6th, and yeah, Donald Trump, and whatever. Why not ask the question, why is that so important to you? Well, because the law, legal justice, this, that, and the other thing. So you believe then that it is appropriate for a person who breaks the law to face punishment for that. Yes, I do. Boom! There's your opportunity. There's your opportunity. You can say, you know what, I do too. But here's the greater issue. It's not just about a traffic ticket. It's not just about not paying your taxes. It's not just about whether or not you were part of the January 6th riots. Everybody has sinned. Everybody. Nobody's perfect. Everybody has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But there's a way, and, and ultimately, you look at this guy, Russ Taylor, who's facing 20 years in prison for a plea bargain for his involvement in the January 6th, right? Well, what do you think you and I are going to have to face? There is no plea deal. He's still facing jail time, but he'll be released from jail at some point. Ultimately, in God's economy, it's either you live in eternity with him free from sin or you live in eternity in, uh, in eternal torment and you can never escape. You'll never pay the punishment, the penalty for your sin. Let me tell you, how you can get door number one instead of door number two. Preaching the gospel is essential. It's what we're commanded to do in Matthew 28 and Mark 16, but it is essential for us now more than ever before. There are so many great opportunities to do so. This is just one of them. We'll put this article up at thebottomlineshow.com and I encourage you to check it out and see how it can impact your world. Well, for our KCBC audience, enjoy the rest of your afternoon. And Rabbi Schneider with Discovering the Jewish Jesus is next for you. For those who remain on the network, a fascinating story about public schools possibly paying their teachers 50% more in the state that pays teachers more than any other state. You know which one that is. And also, why is one student uh, facing disciplinary action for not being willing to read pornographic material in the classroom. Uh, ben Sisney from the American Center for Law and Justice joins me to talk about that coming up next as the bottom line continues. You can protect against market volatility without investing all your money into bonds. Wilson Financial has simply better alternatives. The last 12 months, there has been almost $1.7 trillion invested in investment-grade bonds. This move to safety locks up money for a long time of guaranteed low returns. Why? Market volatility. Well, my comment is why go with low earnings for a long time when you can get great earnings with a solid real estate-backed investment paying you 6% over the next three years. After three years, you can invest in another option, or you can do what most of our investors do and reinvest in another one of our new exclusive 6% accounts. This strategy gives you the best of both options without settling for many years of low returns. Our 3D Money 6% account pays you great interest, 
while you're not subjecting yourself to market volatility. Call 800-696-9970, 800-696-9970, or visit kbrightradio.com slash Wilson Financial and ask about Dennis Wilson's exclusive real estate-backed 6% investment account. Wilson Financial Services, for simply better alternatives. Well, today here on The Bottom Line, a powerful case, a fascinating case involving what happens when woke, if you will, theology finds its way into public schools and kids are actually put in the situation where they have to violate their values and literally uh, engage in pornographic actions because the public school says they're supposed to. Uh, ben Sisney is with me today here on The Bottom Line. He serves as Senior Counsel for Litigation and Public Policy at the American Center for Law and Justice. We have a link for the ACLJ.org up at thebottomlineshow.com. And if you enjoy the Jay Seculow program, Seculow Live on all of our Bottom Line Show affiliates, you are very familiar with the work of ACLJ. Ben Sisney, welcome back to The Bottom Line Show. Thank you so much for having me on. Really appreciate it. Horrible news coming out of Nevada, and that's the only way I can describe it, because we have gotten used to seeing the number of students and parents who have gone to school board meetings, for example, and, and said, hey, did you know this book was in your library or this was recommended? But this case kind of takes it to a whole new level in Nevada. Kind of give us an update, if you would. Yeah, so you're exactly right. And and there has thankfully been sort of an awakening by a lot of parents across the country and re-engaging the school boards, uh, something that that's been needed and and has it's been good to see that. Um, yes, this is one of those cases, and it, this is, I would say, different in some respect, insofar as it's not just a book passively sitting there in a library, which I'm not saying that's great either, but uh, this this is uh, basically coercing a minor um, to act out a uh, an obscene monologue, um, very graphic. I'm not going to read it on your on your program. Um, and um, very graphic monologue to memorize it and read it in class in front of peers and the adult teacher for a grade. Mm. And, and um, so, so this isn't some some something you know more passive in nature. This is very active, as you as you indicated. Mm -hmm. Now, in the case here, I mean, th and this is if I understand this case correctly in Nevada, this takes it though, as you mentioned, the whole new level. This is not a book that was on the shelf in the library that was on the recommended reading list or something like that, where kids got a hold of it and said, "Oh, wow, look at what it says." This is a classroom assignment where the teacher told this girl, you will read these lines. And the American Center for Law and Justice has printed a highly redacted version of what begins this this uh, diatribe, if you will, uh, that we'll have up at thebottomlineshow.com. Just, I mean, you can get the idea. I mean, they blotted out all the bad parts, so it's not, but you get the idea. The idea that this is the beginning of this profanity-laced, sexually explicit, obscene monologue that a 15-year-old girl has to read, and if she doesn't read it, it's a graded assignment. I mean, Ben, this is this is a whole new level of evil we're talking about here. There's a consequence for a refusal not to do it, and I'll, I'll mm -hmm. point out too that that uh, a couple things that that come to mind uh, based off what you said. So, um, allegedly, that this monologue was written by another student. Um, I, you know, we'll find out. That's one of the beauties of discovery. Is we'll get to the bottom of some of that. There may be reason to think that that's not the case. Um, that it, regardless, even if it was, that the teacher had, um, you know, edited or or screened it and helped that student change it. So, you know, what, was it worse before? Was it better? I don't know. But mm. the teacher had a hand in the content. Um, and then uh, also there was one opportunity for students to put back, 
you know, they would draw the the monologue kind of out of a hat, right? And you could put one back, but if you put one back, you couldn't put any more back. And she had already put one back for an unrelated reason and drew this one. And and really what, what what's getting close to the crux of this, besides the violation of parental rights and, and the overstepping of schools, it is that that um the student looked up to this teacher. It's a trusted authority figure. I mean, there's a mm-hmm. reason that in our laws across the country, there are laws recognizing that the people with certain positions of authority have greater responsibilities when it comes to their relationship with minors. Uh, Nevada is no, or, or, you know, is no exception. And so, um, so as a trusted teacher, the student doesn't want to cause a scene. Right. She doesn't want to displease the teacher. This is a teacher that she likes and that she trusts. And if the, you know, the teacher says it's okay, I guess I just need to, you know, just do it. I mean, the teacher says it's okay, right? Mm-hmm. Doesn't want to cause the peer pressure. All of that is, is used to exploit this the student into into performing this monologue, uh, which we'll get to here in a minute, I'm sure, yeah. was so obscene that it was worth cutting the mother's mic off at the school board meeting. And so it seemed that I won't say the words on your program because of FCC regulations. Yeah, that's powerful. Ben Sisley is with me today here on The Bottom Line, Senior Counsel for Litigation and Public Policy at the American Center for Law and Justice, ACLJ.org. Of course, this is Jay Sekulow's organization. If you listen to Sekulow Live, you can get an hour of this each and every day on our Bottom Line Show affiliates. Ben, uh, we aren't going to tap dance around this any longer, but one thing I think is I want to underscore, because this has happened in uh, Texas, it's happened in Virginia, it's happened in other states too. When parents are coming to school board meetings and saying, let me read to you what you assigned my children to read, or in this case, what you required my daughter to read in class, and if she didn't read it, she would fail the assignment. And they're cutting off the microphone of the parents because they say, you can't say that here. That's pornography and there are children present. I mean, is anybody else except the American Center for Law and Justice saying, hello, the emperor is naked. I mean, there's a big problem here with where you're forcing a 15-year-old girl to say these words in a classroom. But if I, as an adult, try to read them in your town hall forum at a public school board meeting, you'll cut my mic off. Yeah. And, and you know, something else on that point too, Roger, is, is that the audacity of the people involved here, the authority figures, they try to blame it on the student. You know, she right. could have said no, but she yes. Yeah. And as we, as we uh, put in our pleading here, uh, by the way, just so everybody's clear, the consent of a minor is not into a, a, a sexual thing, is not, it, uh, I'll put it this way, a minor is legally incapable of consenting. Um, mm. So, you know, she could have said no. Wow. I mean, that's what we're... It, <laughs> So, so that's okay now, right? It's just, it, it is outrageous to try to blame. I mean, and that is typical. Well, I'll, I'll let I'll let that fact speak for itself as to what that's like. But but you see that pattern of conduct by certain kinds of people blaming it on the victim, and and that's what happened here. And, and to your point about the school boards, we encourage parents all across the country to engage more with what's happening in their schools, in their kids' lives, curriculum, all of that. School boards need to know these parents are here, need to do it peacefully and legally, and all, all of that. But but the, the parents are rising up and being heard. This is critical. And if any parents have any issues or problems that, that arise from that, give us a call. 
The American Center for Law and Justice, ACLJ.org, is up at thebottomlineshow.com. Ben Sisney is with me today from the ALC here on The Bottom Line. We're talking about this horrible case out of Nevada Public Schools, and this is Clark County School District, which is the biggest uh, school district in Nevada. And at one point, I mean, the Nevada school systems were so jacked up about 20 years ago, more and more people were moving their building there, and they had one school district for all of these people here. So you can imagine that there's a lot of oversight that's needed here that doesn't happen. Now, initially, before we got to the school board, before they they reached out to you, uh, Ben, let me make sure I understand the chronology here. The 15-year-old girl was forced to do this, made mention of it to her parents. The parents then went to the school, and there was there a meeting with the school before they brought this to the school board and brought you in, or how, what's the timeline on that? Yeah, yeah. So, so without going too far into the weeds on some of on, on on some of those details, there were meetings and interactions that the parents had with the school. I, I believe that the, uh, a particular school official recommended to the parent to raise this at a school board meeting, if I remember that fact right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, there was a series of meetings that happened, some of which involved um, uh, going around the parents' back uh, and and. and arranging a meeting with with some of these adults uh including one uh where it was only the adult male and, and the minor student in a room um and, and that that led to a series of of state law torts that are also included in our in our case um including assault and battery and 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 uh, wow. going around the the parents back uh to and and forcing this student who's already gone i mean we know what age group that this is a tough time. This is a tough time to parent kids this age. This is a tough time to be that kid. And after all of what this student endured to put her through that kind of trauma again, to put her face to face, you know, with the, with this teacher who put her through this and, and those kind of things. Um, it, it, it's just unbelievable. And, and so anyway, back to your question, Roger, yes, there was a series of meetings and things that happened and, um, that ultimately led to the parent going to the school board meeting where they turned her mic off when she started reading. Incredible. <laughs> well, they had given her daughter to read for a grade right. class. Right, right. What I, I, I got to, I mean, I just, I, I, I couldn't help but shake my head and chuckle when I was reading your brief and the, what Jordan had put up at aclj.org, which we've got up at thebottomlineshow.com, which has links. I should caution our, our listeners and our viewers of myhopenow.com. There are links in the ACLJ piece that show you actually what was there. You have to make an effort to click through to them. So if you don't want to read them, there's an excellent summary that we'll post up. And I'm grateful that they've put both. So you do have the opportunity to do so. But the idea that the teachers initially response, if I understand this correctly, was, well, you think this is bad. It was way worse before I edited it. And I thought, oh, well, that makes me feel a whole lot better. I mean, what I've read in just in these first two lines is so repulsive. And then for them to say, yeah, but you should have said in the original, it was a lot worse. Do they really honestly think that that's a defense? I mean, at what responsibility, what legal obligation, what legal protection, Ben Sisti, does a parent have when it comes to sex education and things that are described sex this is not a, this is a drama class right this isn't a life sciences class yeah and, and that's a good point and, and there, there there are um there there is case law that um you know it it is not my favorite line of cases that that has recognized for schools in certain cases to have elements of control over the content of, of curriculum and things of that nature that that i think go outside of what a parent primacy in their in their role as a parent should be in educating their child or approving or at least having the opportunity to approve mm -hmm. someone else educating the child in that topic. Uh, there are laws that exist that require notification 
Um, so to your to your question about what rights parents have, uh, you know, and it, it may vary by county how they're implemented, uh, and some of it, you know, maybe a statewide code. Um, but parents need to, to to dig in. If you have questions about us, to contact us. But dig in, understand what your rights are, because they're so different across one state, across a region, or you know, in a, in a particular federal circuit where a certain case law ap applies that may not apply over here on the East Coast or down South. Uh, so it's a complicated uh, patchwork of, of regulations and, and what's been recognized for parents to have in their role. But the bottom line is the parents need to know and they need to be they need to engage that and, and, and be equipped to handle this kind of a situation. I'm talking with Ben Sistine today here on The Bottom Line, Senior Counsel for Litigation and Public Policy for the American Center for Law and Justice. ACLJ.org is where you'll find this remarkable case, this eye-opening. Uh, I mean, I don't use these, these this kind of hyperbole, if you will, that often, but it's not hyperbole. I mean, it's it really is shocking, the case involving a 15-year-old girl who in the spring of 2022 uh, was required to perform, uh, to read a monologue that was prepared by another student for the entire class. It was very sexually explicit. Uh, they've got a link on their link uh, at thebottomlineshow.com if you want to see how horrible it was. But uh, uh, there's a redacted version of just the opening line that gives you everything that you need to know in terms of uh, what this girl was put through. Uh, ben, you mentioned earlier, and I, this got my ear to perk up, that uh, some of the interactions, especially with the male uh, assistant principal at the school, uh, have resulted in uh, assault and battery charges as well. Um, where's where's this case going? Where are you now? How can we be praying and supporting you as you fight this battle? I, I, absolutely. So we're we're at the very a very early stage in the case, and yeah. and so so we came in uh, and joined uh, a fantastic firm on the ground there in Las Vegas, Lex Technica, and we're we're joining uh, forces with them on this. We just filed um, an amended complaint, uh, which which contains. Um, clarified additional facts and allegations and 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 uh, spelling out the, our, our clients right for, uh, to relief just filed that amended pleading uh be a few weeks and then the school will need to answer or or somehow respond and we expect that they'll fight us at every turn um and they, they really so far they've really dug in and they're defending this which is mm. itself to me i mean i understand you know lawyers have to do their job but like the school is to Defending this, blaming it on the student and defending this, like you said, well, it could have been worse, but I made it better. And and well, she could have said no, which mm. uh, I mean, I mean, yeah, that yeah. speaks for itself. But we're so to answer your question, Roger, we're at the early stage of the case. Okay. Gonna be, you know, we 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 got a fight ahead of us. It's gonna be a long yeah. haul, but that's what we're here for. That's what we do. Exactly. Ben assisting as senior counsel for litigation and public policy at the American Center for Law and Justice, ACLJ.org. You can make a donation. You can keep these uh, men and women who are fighting this good fight in your prayers. And I should point out, too, as far as ACLJ goes, uh, whenever we talk about these things, this is something that the uh, the young woman who's simply identified as R.E., uh, whose dad is a veteran. Is that correct? I mean, from what I understand, this is, I mean, you, you, they, they poke the they picked the wrong bear to poke. I would was think. even deployed during certain relevant, um, relevant oh, parts of this timeline to, to wow. it could make matters worse. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. More offensive. How could you possibly be um, when you're defending this family in this case here to talk about I mean, there? It's tough enough for them just to fight the battle. You guys are are tackling this on their behalf. You know, I mean, help us understand how ACLJ defends people in a case like this and what the costs are that are involved to the families. 
so when we take a case, we take it pro bono. That's one of the unique aspects of, of it. what we get to do. And, and I'm grateful for that. Um, and um, uh, there, there's, you know, different ways to contact us. Probably the main one is through our website. Uh, there's a contact us, you know, form. Um, and uh, to get in touch with us, that's that's one way. Um, you know, in other cases, lawyers or people on the ground will just kind of contact us directly. But we, when we get a case, and it's a case that, that we can that we can take and jump in, and and um, it's it's at no cost to our clients, and um, we're in it for the long haul. And yeah. you know, it, it's it, typically First Amendment life issues is is a particular uh, area of importance to to our practice. But First Amendment, free speech, religious liberties, free exercise. Um, those kind of aspects, uh, you know, whether it's in federal or, or under state law um, or, or the national constitution, um, and and if it's an area that that's within our our practice, and we get to take that case, and we'll 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 give it everything we've got. Like I said, that's what we do. And and I gotta say, I have to applaud our clients. I mean, can you imagine the difficulties of hmm. stand up and fight under these kinds of circumstances? And uh, many, you know, that that's that's a <laughs> that's significant and you know we're we're the lawyers um and 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 it's, I'm, I'm thrilled i get to do what i do for a living and represent people like this it's an honor yes. they're the ones at the tip of the spear we help right. them but they're the ones that are on the ground dealing with this kind of stuff and roger this as you know this is happening all over the country yes it is yes it is and it's it's amazing how one of the be the benefits we saw in the last midterm election was the number of parents who said you know there may it may not have gone the way we thought it was going to in the house and senate and that type of thing but on the school board level to see the number of people of faith who said enough i'm running and they won i mean there there are school boards that are flipping uh, as we speak they'll get ready for the 2024 election because of cases like this and the fact that ben sisney and the american center for law and justice are bringing this clark county nevada case to the the public eye and saying, hey, do you have any idea what's going on? How many more 15-year-old girls are being subjected to this? And boys, for that matter. And you guys are really uh, at the forefront of that. Ben, we applaud you and the American Center for Law and Justice and everything that you do to continue to fight the good fight. Ben Sisney, uh, Senior Counsel for Litigation and Public Policy with the American Center for Law and Justice, ACLJ.org. Ben, always a pleasure. Thanks for the great update. Thanks for being with us today here on The Bottom Line. Thank you for having me. Amazing and truly startling uh, statistic there from Ben Sisney, uh, Senior Counsel for uh, Litigation and Public Policy at the American Center for Law and Justice. Go to aclj.org to keep up on the case of the student who's simply identified as R.E., and you can read all about her case at thebottomlineshow.com. On the other side of this break, uh, more disturbing news. And, and again, this is not to take swing at teachers this past half hour, but to take a look at why so many people are concerned. It's not just the issue of uh, uh, what's happening in the culture with regard to how politicized public schools have been, but how much it costs us taxpayers to pay for that. We'll talk about that coming up next as the bottom line continues. You know the old expression, a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, if you're an expectant mom and you go to a pregnancy health center that is in partnership with Preborn, one picture can say way more than that. And that picture I'm talking about is an ultrasound picture. Every donation that goes to Preborn goes to providing ultrasounds for women who are expecting children and they want to know what all of their options are. When you call 833-850-BABY right now, you give a gift of $28 that provides one ultrasound. But if you give a gift toward the purchase of an ultrasound machine, now that's a 
$15,000 investment, but every ultrasound machine can do 250 ultrasounds per year and lasts a minimum of 10 years. That's 2,500 ultrasounds available to women right now. Think of all the babies, thousands of babies' lives that will be saved by your donation to Preborn right now. Call 833-850-BABY. 833-850-BABY. That's 833-850-2229. Make your best donation right now. $50, $100. Maybe you want to give $15,000. It's completely tax deductible. We've had a couple of bottom line listeners step up and do just that. 833-850-BABY. 833-850-BABY. That's 833-850-2229. Call Preborn right now. My thanks again to Ben Sisney from the American Center for Law and Justice for joining me for the past 20 minutes or so here on the Bottom Line Show, talking about this horrific case involving a 15-year-old girl who was attending a public high school, a Clark County School District in Nevada, so largest school district there. And she was forced to read a pornographic uh, poem, if you will, as part of a, a class in her high school. It was a poem that was written by another student. Don't let don't miss this. The fact that another female student in the class wrote something about oral copulation and a girl engaging in oral copulation with a boy, and it's just, it's filled with profanity and pornography. It's just, it's awful. And she was informed that if she did not read this piece of so-called literature, she'd fail a portion of the course. And when her parents found out what was going on, dad's active duty military, he was deployed. So mom went to the school and complained to the assistant principal who said, don't worry, we'll, we'll, I agree, this is wrong. Um, we'll have meetings with counselors and teachers and your daughter doesn't have anything to worry about. Uh, it won't be like it. She'll be in the room with men by herself. I promise you we'll have other women around. And then the first meeting that the daughter had with the principal, it was just her and the principal. And apparently uh, there was sexual assault and battery. So now it's going to the school district. Mom brings the poem to the school district. And when she went to the school board meeting and started to read what her daughter was forced to read, she, was then, she had her microphone cut off and was told by the school board, you can't read that, it's pornographic. There are children present. At which point, you have to ask the question. Now, the local law firm in the Las Vegas area is partnering with the American Center for Law and Justice, and they are doing their level best to keep this from happening. I know if you're a Christian and you teach in public schools, you're as horrified as I am, and we are, about this happening. But please understand, when people complain, when people say, hey, what's wrong with the public schools? This is what they're talking about. And at the same time, when you see that California is currently running a $31 billion fiscal deficit, the budget deficit for fiscal 23-24 is $31 billion in the red, whereas during the pandemic, when all the free money was coming, and I told you, we've talked about this. I said, look, the only reason California has a quote-unquote surplus is they're getting all sorts of free money, pandemic-related from the government. The minute that all goes away, California's in deep wheat, and sure enough, they are. But now there's a bill, California Assembly Bill 938, that would actually cripple public schools even more and your tax dollars would pay for it. What does that bill entail? Uh, California, well, Education Committee Chairman Al Moratstucci from Torrance would establish a quote-unquote local control funding formula, LCFF, and create targets that by the 2030-2031 fiscal school year, each school district would be required to report its progress in meeting the goal of helping the state create a target 
so that state teachers and other staff members would have their pay increased by 50% in seven years. Now, here's the deal. On the one hand, you've got this education committee chairman saying, we need to pay our teachers and essential school staff what they deserve. There's a worker shortage across the state. Many teachers and school employees are unable to afford to live in communities they work in. And there's a growing wage gap between teachers and comparable college graduates in other fields. But there's a problem. Now, according to a study conducted by uh, UCLA, um, 80% of school of the districts in California reported a shortage of qualified teachers. That's in 2018. One in five teachers plans to leave the profession in the next three years, and teachers earn nearly 25% less than college graduates in adjacent fields, according to Economic Policy Institute. Now, please understand that the average teacher pay statewide more than $88,000. Though starting salaries in some districts are under $50,000, and here's the reason where there's a problem. Go to a state like Texas, for example. The starting salary for a teacher with four or five years experience and a master's degree would be around $60,000, and in California, it would be the same. 15 years later, that California teacher would be making close to $100,000, and the Texas teacher would be making $68,000. See, the problem isn't so much where they start, It's how easy it is for teachers to get increases, cost of living increases, merit increases. They can earn up in terms of their uh, experience, get a master's degree, get a doctorate. We have people with doctorates teaching in public high schools and middle schools. That's not the purpose of a doctoral degree. The purpose of that degree is to teach at college and university. I understand teachers need to have livable, livable wages as well but teachers are a part of that protected class of public servants that have a guarantee that they'll always have a job. I mean, if you're looking for work, you have a young adult in your family that's looking for work, it's not a bad way to go. But understand that teachers are now facing the same type of nonsense that other people do with this woke ideology that keeps showing up. What's happening in Las Vegas is happening in California. And so the California state solution is let's throw more money at them, but maybe, just maybe, Governor Newsom and the People's Republic of California Educational System, California Teachers Association, etc., might want to look at the curriculum, might want to look at the morals and values, might want to look at what how many teachers are leaving the profession, not because they could make more money in the private sector. Maybe they're just tired of the filth. Maybe they're tired of the nonsense. Maybe they're tired of confusing their kids with common core that doesn't make any sense and woke ideology and drag queen strip shows and things of that nature. Maybe, just maybe, They'd like to just teach the kids about reading, writing, and arithmetic. And maybe that's all kids need to learn in public school. That's good news. And that's the bottom line. 